And I'm going to have Tim come up and read our scripture reading uh, out of Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 36. Okay, uh, our scripture reading tonight is from the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 29 through 36. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became, became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of the generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this time. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for, uh, God, your, your objective self-revelation to us. Um, God, of uh, your person, your character, God, of the way that you have worked uh, throughout human history and particularly uh, in, in salvation history and the history of, of your working among your people and uh, God, the way that you are bringing uh, your people back to yourself uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. God, we ask as, as we come to your word that you would give us eyes to see, God, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would receive this passage rightly, uh, that we would apply it to our own lives, that through the power of the Spirit that we would, God, heed the advice that we see in, in this passage and that our lives would uh, be changed accordingly. Father, we pray for... Uh, Again, the gospel to go out in our community. We pray that uh, this day that you have used and will use and will continue to use um, the messages and the songs, God, the readings from, from every Bible-believing, gospel-centered, Christ-honoring church in Blunt County. God, that, that Mother Church um, and, and the ministry that is represented there at Pleasant Grove Baptist Church, um, God, that you would bless it that you would use the preaching and the teaching there uh, to draw people to Jesus Christ. God, other churches in, in that end of our community, God, we pray for Mount Lebanon Baptist Church um, as, as they continue to reach out to the community in all kinds of different ways through their sports ministries. God, certainly through the teaching ministry of their church, we ask that you would bless it, um, that, that people would see Jesus Christ clearly um, through pastors and, and teachers and God, through the leaders uh, of that congregation. Again, we ask for revival in, in, in our community, God. We know that uh, at all times uh, 
we need your spirit moving among us and drawing people to to you. But we ask that particularly at this time, um, as as it seems to be the case that that many of the um, the connections and and the, the places that people would have encountered your gospel and and um, encountered uh, your followers have have in ways diminished, got become less significant in the lives of people. Um, we ask that you would bless, that you would revive, that you would call us uh, and lift us up, uh, and uh, God, show us the centrality and importance of all these things, uh, as I think we will talk about tonight. We thank you, we praise you, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Okay, so this passage that we're looking at is, is very connected to last week's passage. And it's so much to the extent, uh, or to the extent that I, I almost preached them just as one big sermon, but it was hard to figure out how to break it all down and fit everything into the same message. So a lot of the themes that we're talking about are going to be extensions of the stuff that we talked about last week. Um, we're still talking about receiving the gospel. We're still talking about receiving the word of God. When, when the word of God comes to us, how do we respond to the message of God? Um, specifically with the gospel call, but it can and should be applied to to the way that, that any of us receive the word of God. As we hear God's word um, spoken and taught, as we read God's word, as we are confronted with the word of God in different ways, um, how, do we, how do we respond to that call? Because from the get-go in this passage, we see that there is a problem. And perhaps it is a problem that was unique to, to their time, but I don't think that is the case. I think probably at all times, and particularly in our time, we could say the same thing. In verse 29, it says, When the crowds were increasing, he, Jesus, began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. All right. So, again, like we talked about last week, we have a generation of naysayers. We have a generation of agnostics. We have uh, uh, people who, um, both from a religious perspective and from an irreligious perspective, both people who are publicly immoral in some way or people who are discreetly immoral uh, in their lives. Um, but, but we have a generation of people who are, are not believing um, not receiving the call of the gospel, not taking it at face value, always making excuses, always wanting m- some sort of more uh, proof or more reasons or more evidence uh, in some way, shape, or form. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 22, Paul kind of, he's, he's talking into a different context, right? But it's still the same kind of thing going on. What does Paul say? He says, the Jews demand signs... And the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Okay, And so he's describing sort of a similar situation there of, of naysayers and agnostics, um, not in a Jewish context, but in a Greek context in the city of Corinth. So the main problem with this generation, and, and, and whether it's Pharisees or tax collectors, is their unresponsiveness to the word. Okay, and that's, that's what's going on here. And I think in, in some ways that's what the larger passage is about. It's about being unresponsive to the word of God. And so Jesus says, you keep asking for signs, but I'm not going to give you any signs. You will only receive this one sign, and that is this sign that is he calls the sign of Jonah. 
Okay, now a lot of what this passage, a lot of the way we interpret this passage is going to be about what we understand the sign of Jonah to be. Now, here's something interesting. You, you may probably, I, as I read this passage, as I began to study this week, I immediately thought I already knew what the sign of Jonah was. But I think it's different than what we would think it is in this passage. Let me tell you why. Commentators kind of suggest that, uh, that there's a little bit of, of, of uh, disagreement on this. Many commentators, and probably I think probably the general perception of that passage, that sign of Jonah, is that it's referring to the resurrection. So when we talk about the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah is, is the sign of Jesus' resurrection. Matthew's corresponding passage in, in his gospel actually makes that pretty clear in Matthew's context. So Matthew says this, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Pretty much the same language as we just saw. But then he goes on to say this, which Luke leaves out. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay? So definitely in, in Matthew's case, the sign of Jonah seems to be referring to the resurrection. All right? But I think he's suggesting something different in the Gospel of Luke. And that's the reason why Luke leaves out that direct line about saying that the sign of Jonah is, is because Jonah was in uh, the, the belly of the whale for three days. Luke's not necessarily denying that that's, that's connected to it, but Luke is at this moment not so much concerned with Jesus' resurrection as, as the ultimate sign and proof and vindication of who he is, but Luke is, is, is sort of looking at something uh, a little bit different. All right, so he's still thinking about those same things that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Faith in Jesus, belief, receiving the gospel, what should our attitude be towards the word of God and the gospel that is being proclaimed to us? And so, so look at what I think Luke is saying he is referring to as the sign of Jonah. Jonah is a sign. Jonah is the sign. But not so much the incident in the belly of the whale, but his preaching is the sign. And his call to repentance is the sign. So look at verse 30. It says, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be a sign to this generation. So we're not sure of anything there yet. But then all of a sudden he shifts, shifts focus a little bit. Verse 31, he says, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then he goes back to the, to, to the Jonah story. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So especially verse 32, I think, makes the connection to say the sign that Jonah is is the preaching, right? Um, the sign is Jonah's preaching of repentance that he is focusing in on. Again, not to say that Matthew wasn't focusing in on a little something different, and they're probably all connected to each other. But here, Luke is more focused on the preaching of repentance. Jesus says this generation will be condemned. Why? Because two things. Because they didn't respond to his own preaching the way the city of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3, responded to Jonah's preaching. 
And two, because they didn't respond to his wisdom in the same way that the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba responded or sought out the truth and the wisdom of King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. So again, let me refresh your mind, your memory, if you haven't read those stories in a few years. So in the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah is sent to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time. And so the Assyrians, if you go back to your Old Testament history, the Assyrians were sort of the, the, the first. There were the Egyptians certainly before that. But in terms of the uh, Mesopotamia and, and that fertile crescent world that, that you maybe learned about in, in high school, they were the first big empire that kind of took over that whole area. And, and the Assyrians were known to be one of the most brutal and wicked uh, civilizations of antiquity. All right? Jonah is called by God to go to the city of Nineveh and tell them to repent of their sin. But do you remember what happens? Jonah uh, resents God's offer of mercy to the Ninevites, which is what makes him not head east toward Nineveh, but west towards Tarshish, where he has the whole incident where the storm comes, they throw him overboard, he's swallowed by the whale. All right? Um, eventually, after he's vomited up by the whale, he goes to Nineveh, tells them to repent, and to our surprise in the story, the people of Nineveh repent. The king calls for the people to put on sackcloth and ashes and, and for the whole nation to repent of their sin. The second story about the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, is the story of this woman who comes from some region. We're not positive where Sheba is exactly. It could be the southern Sinai Peninsula. It could be Ethiopia. It's somewhere in that sort of African Near Eastern area. But this woman hears of Solomon's great wisdom, his great benevolence, um, uh, the truth and, and the justice that comes from his throne, and she leaves her kingdom and comes at, at great cost to herself to the court of Solomon to live there for a time to receive wisdom from Solomon. So those are kind of the two illustrations that Jesus uses. Well, what are they pointing to us towards? What are those two illustrations demonstrating? When presented with their sin, a nation that previously had not followed God and in essence had no reason to follow God, turned to God wholeheartedly. A queen with her own rule, her own responsibilities, heard of Solomon's wisdom, and she puts everything in her own life on pause and leaves it all behind, which if you know anything about like the way politics works in those words, right, that's a risky thing to do for a king or a queen to leave their own country, leave their own throne, because there's always some general or some child or something waiting in the wings to try to usurp the person. She recognizes that the wisdom to be gained is worth the risk of stepping away from her life. Jesus says, Sinful men were willing to repent at the preaching of Jonah. But those who hear my message, Jesus' message, those people who have heard a much greater message than Jonah's and should be the kind of people who would listen to it anyway because they're already the Jewish followers of God, they won't move. And the Queen of Sheba was willing to risk everything, and yet... 
her wisdom was paltry, or, or the wisdom that Solomon had that she was learning was paltry and insignificant next to the wisdom that the Messiah has. And yet, nobody is willing to drop everything and come and follow Jesus and learn from him. And so for that reason, Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. And at the day of judgment, the Queen of Sheba and the nation of Nineveh will stand in judgment over this, this, this generation. These people have radically given their lives, radically changed their lives for much less significant things. And you guys won't move, is what Jesus is saying. So think about this for a second, and, and, I, and I try to contemporize it, and I don't want to be too, I don't, I don't want to get anybody worked up or whatever, but think of all the stuff that we are passionate about, that we get bent out of shape about, the urgency of, of wokeness in our culture, the, in, the, the urgency of nationalism in our culture, um, whether it's something from abortion to saving sea turtles, you know, and having junky straws at every place now. Whether it's just something as significant as, as the Palestinian and Israeli conflict that's going on right now. And there are things that we have firm positions on and we have strong, passionate reactions to. And I'm not mocking any of those concerns. Um, each of those has some kind of a certain level of degree of, of validity and there are arguments that are important for, for each one of those things. But we are moved by so much lesser issues, and, and, and we are passionate about such weaker causes and weaker calls on our lives. And yet for the more important things, the call of Christ and the call of the gospel, we are deaf to those things oftentimes. Or more particularly for his illustration in a second, that we are blind to those things. We are unmoved by our own laziness. We're unmoved by our own lusts. We're unmoved by our own rebellion in any number of ways, but we're very concerned about all these different issues out in the world. Or perhaps from the, the perspective of the Queen of Sheba, we exert huge amounts of energy and resources to seek after the knowledge and the wisdom of the world. You will study for certifications and licenses for your occupations and put so much energy and effort into them. You will dedicate four, six, eight years of your life, a tenth of your life, an eighth of your life, and tens of thousands of dollars that you will be paying off for a good percentage of the rest of your life for a degree and yet I tell you that something greater than a bachelor's degree has come. Something more important than that is here. And yet I don't I think most of us would we would never put that much energy and time into the kingdom of God. Jesus is basically saying these things are worth our lives. They're worth our everything. They're worth everything that we could put into them. They're certainly worth the way Nineveh responded. They're certainly worth the way the Queen of Sheba responded and more. Jonah was the most reluctant of prophets with a half-hearted message of repentance. And the most wicked nation in the world 
turned wholeheartedly to God. But when the sons of God are preached to, a nation that should already know better, well, you know, Jesus probably does these things because he's possessed by the devil. That's why he has all this power. That's probably what's going on. I would believe you, Jesus, but I really need a little more evidence. You're going to have to do a few more healings, a few more casting out of demons, a few more walking on waters, a few more feeding 5,000 or 10,000 or whatever else. And when you finally do that, then I'll maybe I'll think about believing you. So what's our problem? What are their problem? What's our problem? Because, again, I don't want to say that we are necessarily exactly the same people. Okay, um, We are people who have received Christ. Right? We have received the gospel. We're different than the Pharisees in some ways, but then we can also all, I think, if we look at our own lives for a second, we can recognize that there are many ways in which the call of Christ is coming to us and we are holding it at bay for some reason. So what's our problem? What is wrong with those naysayers, those agnostics that we talked about who won't receive Christ? But also what's wrong with us? Well, Jesus tells us that the problem is our eyes. Our eyes are the problem. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. Here's the thing, man. This illustration gets a little odd. It's a little, it's a little difficult to exactly figure out what Jesus is getting at here. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So it almost feels like the, the, the illustration is shifting a little bit sometimes. Like you're not exactly, um, it's a little bit of a hard, a hard passage to, to translate. I think what's, what he's saying is this, though. Our eyes, physically, our eyes are the organ or the instrument of our perception. Right? That's how we receive information. Certainly Jesus could have maybe used the illustration of hearing or, or touch or smell or one of the other senses or something, but the eyes illustration gives us sort of the clearest picture of what he's talking about. Right? You perceive things. You understand and engage the world around you because light shines from a source and bounces off an object and comes into your eye and goes through a miraculous process, right? If you've ever, like, studied about how an eye works and how it translates into – we don't even know, honestly, how it works. How your brain takes that information and processes and turns it into what we perceive as vision is, is still sort of a mystery, in some ways. Well, we understand the, the biochemistry of it, but it's a miracle. Okay? It is something miraculous. And the way the way all that sight works, it is an evidence for God in itself. All right? But I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about because they didn't know any of that stuff then. But everything that you know, that information comes in through your eyes. But here's the thing, and, and, and you I'm sure you know this from, from engaging with, with relatives and grandparents and things like that. There are any number of conditions that can give you issues with your eyes, your sight, your vision, the way you receive information. If you have cataracts, your vision is blurred. The way you see things is blurred. 
If you have glaucoma, the periphery of your vision is, is blurred or blocked. If you have macular degeneration, the center of your vision is blurred or blocked. If you have retinopathy, these little dark spots appear, these little floaters, right? Some of you probably have experienced that when you when you read for too long. All of a sudden, like you see these little things float across your eye or your vision. This can sometimes happen when when our vision is strained, even when there's not some sort of larger problem there. So, so we recognize there's any number of physical conditions that can hinder the way that we receive information. Well, here's the thing that Jesus is giving as an illustration. There are any number of spiritual issues that act in the same way, that act in perception blockers for us. We can have hindrances to our spiritual side the same way we can have hindrances to our physical side. We put on some kind of lens that we see the world through, some sort of filter that causes certain things to not be received in the way that they're supposed to be received. So Jesus says in verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. What is he saying? It's basically the idea of saying your eye is the lens through which light comes into you. And in this case, it's not talking about physical light. It's talking about the light of truth. Your eyes, there is a lens that they come through. And if that lens is clouded, then the light is not going to get in properly. And if the lens is clear, then, then your whole body is going to be lit up and not full of darkness. Jesus is saying that your perception, when it is clear, clean, unencumbered, will fill your life with light. You would be responding to the call of Christ rightly. Were it not for the fact that there's something, there's something blocking it. There is a UV screen or something over your eyes to where it is not getting all the stuff that it's supposed to be getting. Those things could be any number of issues, any number of ways that you perceive the world, any number of values you have, anything that you think is important, any bit of hang-up, any bit of sin that you're holding on to could be any of those lenses. And sometimes you might say, man, Ash, some of those perception issues are just, they're just the way I see the world, right? I, I can't be held responsible for, like, those vision disorders, right? I, I can't help the fact that I have cataracts spiritually. That's just the way that I am. That's one of my concerns when we talk about personality typing stuff, like when we talk about Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or, honestly, even spiritual gift inventories, because the danger is, is that we start saying, oh, I know the way that I am. This is just the way that I am. I'm just a skeptical person. I'm just pessimistic. I'm just blunt. I'm just sensitive. I'm naive. I'm rational. That's just the way I am. That's just the way I receive and perceive information. But here's the thing. Notice what Jesus says. He says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Why I zoom in on that is because you don't typically ask people to be careful about things that they don't have any control over, right? Nobody ever, you know what the number one cause of death in the world is? Getting old, okay? That's the number one cause of death. But you know what you never hear anybody say? They never say, hey, be careful about getting old. You got to watch out for getting old. Just be careful about it. Be careful about it. They don't say that. You know why? Because it doesn't matter what you do. It's going to happen. 
they'll say, be careful about other aspects of your health, be careful about where you do this, and whatever. they'll get, zoom in on things. So they don't tell you to be careful about being old, because you're just going to get old. Jesus wouldn't tell us to be careful about something that we had no control over. He wouldn't say to us, be careful about your pessimism. If pessimism was just the way you are, and you can't help that. He wouldn't say be careful about your being too rational. If there was no way that we could stop being too rational. Here's the thing. All these naysayers, all these agnostics, they all have a yeah but when the word of God comes to them. And Jesus is saying those yeah buts are the filters that I'm talking about. They are the the dirty lens that is on this lamp that is shining into your life, keeping the light of Christ from shining into every corner of your life. Yeah, but I don't have the time. Yeah, but I have these other priorities that are more important. Yeah, but that would probably cost me too much. Yeah, but I have to give up these things that are really important to me. Yeah, but I have friends and peers that are going to ridicule me and reject me because of these decisions. Yeah, but I, I, this goes against everything that I was taught to believe and value um, in my upbringing. We say those kind of things all the time. We hear the word of God, we read the word of God, and then we go, yeah, but he can't really mean that. Like, he can't expect that of me. So what do we do? How do we, how, Jesus says be careful, so he expects us to notice these things about our own hearts and lives and lenses, and then to do something about them. And we talk about it over and over again, is the word is repentance. We repent. And to repent, we do two things, basically. And interestingly, they are the same two things that Jesus draws attention to in the lives of the Ninevites and the lives of the Queen of Sheba. The first thing we do is we respond like the Ninevites do, and we say, I'm wrong. When the word of God confronts us, we say, I'm wrong. God's wisdom is greater than my wisdom. God's decisions and judgments on these things is greater than my judgments. And we acknowledge our wrongness, and we do something about it. Like the king of Nineveh, who said, let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil ways, from the violence that is in his hand, and who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They didn't even have a promise of what God was going to do. But they said the only way that we can respond to God's call in our life is to acquiesce, to say, yes, I've been wrong for all this time doing these things that I've been doing, and and I've got to follow God now. I've got to do what he says now that I know his word. When we are told that we're living sinfully, our first response is not to ignore it, not to reject it, not to make an excuse, not to say yeah, but, but to take heed to what God is saying. And then guess what? The second thing we do is the other piece of repentance, and it's just what the Queen of Sheba does. Not only do we say, I'm wrong, but we say, God, you are right. I need to seek after you. I need to find out how you would have me live and what you would have me do. And that's worth everything. I should, I should put everything down and go to wherever I can get that from and put all of my energy into it and to discover the truth and the wisdom that can be found there. It's worth seeking. It must take priority in my life. 
It must be the focus and center of everything that I do. So again, we talked last week about that idea of the house being swept clean, but not being filled with the good things of Christ and with Christ himself afterwards. Paul talks about that same idea in Philippians. He says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Don't leave your life empty, and don't just fill it up with a bunch of other junk. But fill it with the things that are good. I'll kind of close on, I'm, I'm going through a book right now uh, that some of you may have read. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's by a guy named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is the guy who, who did the message translation of the scriptures. And I'll be honest, I love Eugene Peterson's writing. And he has these incredible little nuggets of wisdom that are just, you know, kind of eye-opening things. But sometimes he's a little loosey-goosey, right? Sometimes he's just a little goofy, and I go, come on, man. Like, people are going to be led astray by the looseness of that, what you just said. But here's the thing. I was refreshed when I came to this book because it's about the Christian life of discipleship. It's about the Christian life of obedience. And you know what he starts with in the book? Chapter... The first chapter is on discipleship as a, as a theme. The first thing, the first thing, it's not God. That would make sense. It's not faith. That would make sense. It's not even Jesus. That would make sense. The beginning of the book is on repentance. And he says a couple of things. The Christian consciousness begins in the painful realization that what we thought was truth was actually a lie. The usual biblical word describing the no we say to the world's lies and the yes we say to God's truth is the word repentance. It is always and everywhere the first word of the Christian life. And I'll be honest, I was refreshed by that. I was like, maybe you're not as loosey-goosey as I thought you were, Eugene Peterson. Again, if he had started with Jesus, that would have made sense and I wouldn't have questioned it. If he had started with faith, I would have been fine too. But there was something unique about the fact that he said, no, the beginning of this whole thing and the problem that we all have is that we are living in the midst of the lie. And we just go on believing it every single day. And the word of God comes to the filter of our perceptions. And as it comes in, it is broken up. And, and, and uh, the, the prism of, of those filters splits the word of God up into little pieces. And we say, I'll take that piece and I'll take that piece and I'll that, take that piece. And the rest of it, I don't have to worry about because of this, 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 and this. And Eugene Peterson says, that's not the way the Christian life begins. It is not the daily, always, and everywhere of the Christian life. The Christian life begins and ends every single day with saying, I'm wrong, and God is right. I'm wrong every single time. Given left to my own devices, left to my own lenses, I'm wrong. 
But God is right, and I should seek his wisdom at all costs. So we're going to go to the Lord in a time of prayer. And again, I don't know what, um, I know this, is that every single one of us, this is the issue of your life. Because it is the always and everywhere of the Christian life. It's the issue in my life. It's the issue of every single moment and every single decision you make. How that specifically applies to you and what you're going through and, and things that God is laying on your heart, I don't know. But what I'm going to do is ask that you would pray that God would aid you in doing exactly what he commanded us to do. To be careful about those, our lamp. Be careful about the lenses that we put on our perception. Be careful about the things that we say, this is necessary. I have to believe things and act according to them because of this. Be careful of those things because they may be the very things that are keeping the word of God from shining into your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are good and gracious to your people. God, you are patient with us as, as we stumble and as we stray, as we, God, fumble through um, this life and the calling that you have on it. God, you are incredibly patient with your people. You are incredibly patient with those who are not your people yet. God, you are mercy. You are long-suffering. But God, you also warn us that there is a day coming. A day of judgment when, God, the people of Nineveh, the Queen of the South, will rise up and stand in judgment over us. Because they had so much weaker a message and so much stronger a response. And yet we have your own son and your own word, and we are so lackadaisical in our response. God, help us to remove the lenses from our eyes. Remove those lenses that impede the word of God. Help us remove all of the yeah buts, all of the naysaying, all of the agnosticism, God. Help us to receive your word rightly, rightly and live according to it. We cannot do this on our own, God. We need you working in our lives. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name.